Welcome to The Rational Egoist. I'm your host, Michael Leibowitz. As many of you know, um, I have a very checkered past, to say the least, and to come out of that took a considerable amount of self-transformation, self-improvement. So whenever I come across articles on the subject, they really intrigue me. And I came across one such article this week in Psychology Today, so I reached out to the author of the article to get him to come on the show. And he's well-equipped to discuss the topic with us. He serves on the faculties of the John Hopkins School of Medicine and the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. And he's also the author of more than 20 books on stress, psychological crisis intervention, disaster mental health, and human resilience, and an abundance of other topics as well. George S. Everly Jr., PhD, and a lot of other letters that I've never heard of. We've got ABPP, FAPA, and FAPM. Well, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Good morning. I came across a quote from you. I actually posted it to my Facebook page this morning because I thought it was a very good quote. It's, it's been said that at the end of the journey, there is always a mirror. Perhaps the journey can be made far easier if the mirror is placed at the beginning. Can you explain what that means? So there is a quote, um, and it, there are variations of it in the literature, that um, at the end of a journey, meaning the journey of life, um, but it doesn't have to be a journey of life. It can be any well-circumscribed journey. There's a mirror which means that at the end of that journey, whatever it was, we end up looking at ourselves. Um, and part of that is the opportunity. We seldom take advantage of it. But part of that is the opportunity to say, okay, how did I get here? So it, it just occurred to me that let's change that quote to say basically what it said before, at the end of any journey is a mirror. Perhaps it would be, best if that mirror was placed at the beginning of the journey. Every journey, and you've alluded to, uh, to, to the challenges you've had, every journey has challenges. And I would bet everyone has the opportunity to look back at that mirror at the end and say, gee, I wish I had done something different. So we have that regret thing going. Um, wouldn't it have been nice to have the opportunity at the beginning of the journey to say, this is going to be a challenging journey, and here are the challenges I'm going to face. Here are the ones I know about. There are many that I don't know about, but what I do know is how I can control myself. And in the final analysis, everything comes back to us. Sadly, we live in a, in a society that has some challenges of its own in terms of accepting responsibility. And I, I understand that. We teach our children. We, we do the best we can as parents. Um, but if you're at all up in the child-rearing literature and child development literature, you're probably aware of the fact that we have helicopter parents. We have parents that are overly protective of our children. And most of that fault falls on my generation. I'm a baby boomer. And we had the best of intentions, but in the process, we failed to teach the core, some of the core values of life. And, and one of those core values is taking responsibility for your actions. And the, 
the idea of taking responsibility for your actions is great after it happens. As Maya Angelou said, and I'm paraphrasing, if I'd known better, I would have done better. It's a great, it's a great line. I know better, now I will do better. But what if we just fast rewind all that and say, there are gonna be some challenges. How do I handle those challenges? How do I handle impulsivity? How do I handle my own narcissism? How do I handle my own insecurities? And we put all that on the front end. There's a great line. I don't know whether you ever saw the movie, The Gladiator. Yes, great one movie. Couple, oh yeah, it's one of my favorites. Um, won a couple of Academy Awards, but there's a great line in it. And it, it's where the Russell Crowe, the main character playing Maximus says, what you do today echoes for eternity. Yes. And it's not to say that we can't clean up the messes we've made in life, but it'd be a heck of a lot easier if we just didn't make those messes, or at least we minimize this, right? So that's a long-winded answer. Basically, what we're talking about, I guess, is self-reflection. And as somebody who has had to do a considerable amount of self-reflection, it's very difficult because it often entails looking at things that we'd rather not see, painful things, weaknesses, uh, embarrassing things about ourselves. But nonetheless, if we want to know ourselves, to have that mirror that you're talking about, it, it's a must. What would you recommend to somebody that's beginning that process, that's just starting to take a look at themselves, but is a little bit scared to do so? Um, so there are a number of things that I've come up with over my life's journey. Again, wish I had known them when I was 16. Um, one of the things that we find a lot of is insecurity, fear, fear of failure. And if you kind of think of a lot of the self-defeating things we do in life, it's actually compensated for two things, our insecurity and our fear of failure. Um, history is replete with people that made mistakes but got in more trouble trying to cover up the mistakes. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, this is reaching into history a little bit, but can any, does anybody remember Richard Nixon? That's who came who, to my mind. <laughs> yeah. Who literally lost the presidency, not because of what he did, but because of the cover-up of what he did. And, and there are many, many examples. So, so the first thing I try to emphasize to people, and I, I give a lot of talks and people will come up to me and say, you know what, what, what are some keys? They're usually younger, starting their careers. And I say, understand that life is not a one trial learning process. I mean, how many things have you done in life that you got it right the first time. Yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll talk about myself, almost none. Which means failure is necessary. It's, it's, it, it, it shapes the journey, it refines the process, it's necessary. So, so much of what we do to keep from failing 
is actually energy not only wasted, but grossly misdirected. If we understand that failure is stepping stone to success, we need not run from it. We need not hide or make excuses for it. And that's undergirding why we don't take responsibility for our actions. Yeah, we're all insecure. I get it. Well, most of us. And uh, and that's okay. Um, have you ever heard the phrase fake until you make it? Yes. Um, I'm a I'm a big advocate of that, especially people starting out in their careers. This is not a license to be arrogant or dismissive, but rather self-confidence is an imperative. One of the things it allows you to do is tap into an almost magical force. And that force is called the self-fulfilling prophecy. And the self-fulfilling prophecy has a long scientifically grounded history. It's not just some abstract construct. And it, it, it derives from a sociologic theorem, which says basically, as you believe, the likelihood of that outcome is enhanced, whether it's success or failure. Henry Ford once said, whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. One of the scientific reasons that the self-appelling prophecy is so powerful is how many times in your life have you said to yourself, I'll try this, but I'll probably fail? Yeah, quite a few. It be, yeah, it could be something almost insignificant, or it could be something rather large. So how does science play in this? If you say to yourself, I'll try this, but I'll probably mess it up. So you try it because one trial learning is very rare, right? The likelihood that you're going to fail is probably 80 or 90% on those things. New at least. So you fail. Then what do you do? You quit. Not because you couldn't master the task. You quit because you said to yourself on the front end, I'll probably screw this up. You just did. You say, see, I was right, and now I'm going to stop. What's the science say? The science says persistence, tenacity, may be the single best predictor of most things in life. And you just surrendered it. I found a fascinating quote from maybe the greatest heavyweight champion of all time, certainly of the modern era. His name was Muhammad Ali. And when he first arrived on the scene, he was perceived as arrogant, braggardly. He kept saying, I'm the greatest, I'm the greatest, I'm the greatest. I found a quote where he said, you know, all those years I was telling people I was the greatest, I didn't really believe it. I didn't believe it until someone else told me. But if he isn't the classic example of faking it till you make it, I don't know who is. So while we cannot dictate all the things that will happen to us in life, sometimes we're just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Sure. We can handle, we can affect how we cope with those things. It was Marcus Aurelius, if you've ever read Meditations, um, he, he, Marcus Aurelius was one of the five considered great Roman emperors. 
He was also a Stoic philosopher. And he wrote a book called Meditations. And I'm Anglicanizing it and putting it in my own words, but simply said, he said, look, um, control what you can, cope with the rest. And understand the only thing you really can control is how you react to the world as it unfolds before you. And that's what I try to teach. That's what I tried to teach my children as they were growing up. And that's what I sometimes have to teach myself every day. You mentioned persistence and how important it is. And I remember reading in, in Thinking Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. It was a section called Three Feet from Gold. And it was about these people that were digging for gold and they gave up and they were three feet from finding it. And one of the things that I've learned in my life is that persistent pays off, persistence pays off, but not always in the way necessarily that we hope or that we think at the beginning. When my friend Brent McCall and I, we wrote a book when we I was incarcerated criticizing the prison system. We thought that once we published this book, the media would be knocking down our door to, to get copies of this thing. And it would just, it, it, it would make a splash immediately, but it didn't. And we were like, oh my God, like, what are we going to do? And there was a politician that we hadn't, we, we didn't want to get in touch with because we said, you know what? We don't want some politician using our book for his agenda. But it got to the point where we were like, you know, what else? We, we have nothing else to try. So we did that. That politician turned out to be one of the nicest guys I've ever met. Still friends with him to this day. That was, I don't know, six, seven years ago. And I thought, okay, now we got this politician on our side. Now we're going to make waves. But then he lost his election. And it's, oh, no, what are we going to do? But because I had maintained a friendship with him, he did his best to get me media attention. And finally, he got me on a local talk show, a, a radio show. And I was so excited. I went on the show. And immediately after the show, the host said to me, how would you like to be a regular on the show? And I said, sure. And from that, I developed, well, I found what I wanted to do with my life, which was be a talk show host, which is what, what I'm doing right now. And it, 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 the being persistent and keep trying to get attention for our book ultimately led me to where I am right now. When we wrote that book, I never in a million years thought it would result in me hosting my own podcast. But the persistence paid off, just not in the way that we initially expected. Is that a, a rare thing to happen that when people stay focused and continually push forward, they often reap benefits they didn't expect initially? I think it's probably fairly rare, but it's not unaccounted for. There's a guy by the name of Thorndike, John Thorndike, who's a psychologist, and he wrote about a theory he had developed called happenstance theory. And it was actually in the world of career counseling, career development. Um, most of career development through its history has been linear, meaning you take an interest inventory. I remember doing this in, in junior high school, taking an interest inventory. And then a report comes back and says, you have interests like a librarian, therefore you should be a librarian. Or you have interests like a mathematician, you should be a mathematician. 
So they take the interest profile that you fill out, match it to those of people already in those careers. And they say, okay, so now what you have to do is do whatever training a mathematician becomes, right? And that's largely been a lot of what career counseling has been. So uh, Thorndike comes along. I'm sorry, not Thorndike, Crumbles, Crumbles. Crumbles, and he says, you know, that's okay for when it works. I mean, it, it works in a lot of places, you know, if you want to go to medical school, if you want to go to law school, if you want to be a sociologist, if you want to be an accountant, that linear straight line makes sense. But how many people just get out there and and when you ask them at retirement, did you ever think you'd be doing what you did? A lot of them say no, because of the very factors you're talking about, that this happenstance, chance. So Crumbolf basically says, Position yourself in life, and I love this, for the opportunities you don't even know are there. And when they arise, you'll be ready to take them. If, however, you're on a linear track, you're wearing blinders, and you may not see opportunities that are far better for you because you've got your eye on the prize, which we always say, keep your eye on the prize. But there are other prizes out there, some of them much more significant, perhaps, than the one you got your eye on. So I, I like the happenstance theory by Carl. I, I do, too. I'm going to have to look the guy up. Uh, the article that you wrote was primarily about something you called self-cultivation. What is self-cultivation? So it's just a term I came up with, with the notion, because I've been very interested in self-improvement. I mean, I started my career studying post-traumatic stress disorder and ultimately made my way through taking a look at that, treating that. I had basically, before I retired clinically, that was my core patient base. Those are the folks I would uh, treat. Um, but then I got into human resilience. And then I got into, well, um, this whole idea of self-help and self-improvement. And... There, I mean, it's a multi-billion-dollar industry. Sure, and there's a lot of garbage out there, but there's a lot of really helpful stuff. So I started wading through it, and realized that, and I thought of it especially in the context of a New Year's resolution. Most of us, eighty percent at least, fail at our New Year's resolution. Why is that? And the answer appears to be one of them other than we set our goals too high or something like that. But other than that, it seems to be that it's hard to acquire new things without jettisoning some of the old things that are barriers. So the idea of cultivation, I borrow from agriculture, where you have to till the soil. So you can imagine, and I've never met a farmer, although I've tried to plant some things around. If you just go out and throw seeds on the top of the soil, this is the soil that is most nutrient depleted and has the least permeability. And, and, and you need both to have something grow. So what do you do? You till the soil, which means you, you turn it over, you plow it, you, you take the old soil, you mix it in with new soil, you 
blend it all together. You make the soil more, more permeable and receptive to, to new input, which will be the nutrients, which will be the water, which will be the seed that you plant. So that's a metaphor. So the seed that you plant is the new thing you want to do or thing you want to become. But it doesn't happen in a vacuum. You have to nurture it. So if you want to get stronger or healthier from a physical standpoint, you go to the gym, but you just can't go to the gym. You have to work out. Now, the problem is most people do that for a few weeks and they stop. Why? Because they've just added something to their already busy schedule, right? And they can't fit it in. What do people say at the gym? I can't fit it in. What did they fail to do? They failed to till the soil. They failed to get rid of something that was taking up space non-productively. And they failed to replace it with this new behavior. So cultivation for me says that self-improvement is often, not always, but often predicated on taking a look at some of the things in your life and getting rid of them, making space for this new thing. So that's what that's all about. So in essence, and correct me if I'm wrong, we use self-reflection. We identify problem areas in our life, in our lives. We look for things that are taking up unnecessary space. We work on the things that are wrong with us. We get rid of the things that are standing in our way. And then we replace them with the desired behaviors, but we actually have to implement those behaviors. You fake it till you make it, like you said, right? Now, it's a truism in psychology that rewarded behavior is repeated behavior. And I, I saw that you wrote something to the effect of the best reinforcers, the best rewards come from within ourselves. Explain how that works. Well, like, what would be internal reinforcers? How do they help us to stay the course? Does the name B.F. Skinner mean anything to you? Yes, the Skinner box and the training of his own children. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so he is sometimes called the father of operant conditioning. Um, and he, he basically argued, he questions whether we have free will or not. Yeah. He said our lives are shaped by the contingency in our environment, which is what you've said. Rewarded behaviors repeat themselves. Unrewarded behaviors go into extinction. How does that reflect with what I said? So it just so happened that I was on faculty with B.F. Skinner once upon a time. I was a really young guy and he was not so much. Um, and I remember walking up to him at a Christmas party, faculty Christmas party, and I was in awe of the great Dr. Skinner. And I said, Dr. Skinner, I, I you know, obviously am a devotee of your work. I just have one question for you. Who determines what's reinforcing? Who determines what's a rule? Isn't that free will? I mean, what my if I made a list of my top 10 reinforcements and Michael, you did yours, I, I bet you they wouldn't be the same. No. They'd be some overlap. Where does that come from? It comes from within, does it not? So part of this whole journey is determining 
not just what your strengths and weaknesses are, but what your rewards are. What is it you're really after? I had a had a uh, graduate student just last week ask me. He said, "How did you plan out your career?" I said, "I didn't." I mean, I'm the, I'm a living example of happenstance. He said, "Well, didn't you have any goal?" I said, "Yes." From age 16, I had a goal. It was a lifestyle. It wasn't to become a psychologist. I'm not sure I could spell psychologist back in 2016. It was not to be a neuroscientist. I didn't know what that, had no idea what that was. It wasn't to be a public health scholar. And yet I became all of those things. Were those my goals? No. I wanted a lifestyle. And I part of what I wanted in my lifestyle was never having to work. And what I mean by that is not the literal interpretation, but I consider work doing something that's hard and perhaps unpleasant, sometimes unpleasant. I, I very seldom had that job. Everything I've done in my life professionally, I've enjoyed doing. My wife sometimes says to me, you work too much. You're, you're supposed to be retired. I said, I'm not working. I'm, I'm following a hobby. This is what I like doing. So, and it has, it has not given me a lifestyle of the so-called rich and famous. I think it was a show like that. But it's given me a comfortable lifestyle that I'm happy with. And, and, and you could do a lot worse, right? <laughs> yes, one then the, to be happy, absolutely. The uh, one of the myths I think that's out there is that again these interest inventories help us do this, sustain the myth that is. Um, make a list of your strengths, make a list of your weaknesses, and often the the assertion then goes: strengthen those weaknesses. Make them strengths. Reality is, it's a lot easier to say that than to say. That's why it's hard getting those things out. So a, a more clever strategy is to find your strength and make it a superpower. But pick the strengths that cannot coexist with your weaknesses. I like so that. it's hard to change. So if I said, I want to stop drinking carbonated beverages, maybe so. You can just stop drinking carbonated beverages. Do you know what makes it much easier? If you do something that competes with drinking carbonated beverages, and you can't do both. So when I was in my teens and I was starting to go to the gym, I actually had that dilemma. It sounds silly. But I thought, well, I'll drink a recovery drink, a protein drink. And I can't do both. So all of a sudden, by strengthening a strength, I was taking care of a weakness at the same time. I like that a lot. 
Before we go, I, w- I want to just ask one question. I'll give you an example first. The, people often ask me, well, you, you know, Michael, you criticized the prison system, but yet you spent you know a quarter century there and you were able to change. So how do you explain that? And my answer is that I had a very close friend who embarked on the change process with me. We, we were friends. We lived in the same housing unit for 16 years. We were cellmates for 11 and we would challenge each other, call each other out on our bad behavior, on our, our twisted thinking. And I guess it's just, it's immeasurable to me, the benefit of having an associate who was like-minded, who wanted to do the same thing. And you talked about the importance of associating with and talking to people who are what you want to be. That wasn't the language you used, but that was in essence essence what you said. So how important is that, that if you want to be a, a better person, you want to improve yourself to start associating with people that are where you want to go? So science teaches us the single best predictor of human resilience is the support of others. A buddy system for life or in, in microbursts, whatever. But we know that uh, the other side of that coin, of course, is loneliness. We're in the middle of a loneliness epidemic. And how's that working out in the mental health spectrum for us? Surveys that psychologists have done are telling us that the generations we're dealing with now that are coming into adulthood and even mid-career are the... Uh, loneliest, most depressed, and most anxious of any we've ever recorded. So there's a, there is in, a, in and of itself a direct downside to being lonely. But there's a direct upside, not just compensating for loneliness, but there's a direct upside to going through life with a friend, a colleague, a confidant, a buddy. And... Uh, I I see that happening. You know, the science says, again, single best predictor of human resilience is interpersonal support. But, and, and this sounds politically incorrect, perhaps, but it's scientifically founded. A lot of life, not all, but a lot of life is whom you know, whom you know, whom you know. And there is value in cultivating respectful, meaningful, not usurous, but self-enhancing and mutually enhancing relationships. I think it's an imperative. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for joining us here today. Where can people find you? Do you have a website, a, a blog, anything like that? Um, Not really. I I do have a blog, um, and the blog is on Psychology Today. It's an online magazine, and um, the blog is called When Disaster Strikes. And I started writing that because most of my career I've been dealing with disaster mental health issues. But then I started thinking about just people and the people who go through disasters and those who do well and those who don't do so well. And I started asking myself the question, why is that? Um, and that took me on a 20 plus year career of 
trying to find ways of learning to develop not only, I'll call it in the framework of uh, the military, psychological body armor, is there is there truly is such a thing where we can strengthen ourselves psychologically to make to increase our immunity to extreme stress and our ability to bounce back quicker. So I started focusing on that. So a lot of the, there are like 70 posts on that thing now. A lot of them have to deal with just us as a person. What does science teach us? What does philosophy teach us? What is the wisdom of the age? As George Santayana said, those who fail to read history are doomed to repeat it. But there was a futurist, Alvin Toffler, who said something even more compelling. He said, yeah, failure to read history dooms you to repeat it, but there's something else. Those who fail to shape history and shape the future will be forced to endure. I'll leave you with that. So it's psychology today, George Everly, when disaster strikes. Thank you so much. For now, yep. this is this is the Rational Egoist signing out. Remember, let me know what you think. Leave your comments, your likes, your dislikes. They help tremendously. Till next time.